Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you this morning. What a wonderful day God has given us to come together, worship, and praise his name. I'm so happy to see each and every one of you here this morning to worship our God. I'm going in my Bible to the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. Will you join me there, please, in Revelation, the fourth chapter? Revelation chapter four and verse number one. The Apostle John wrote these words. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Summer is fast approaching, right? Believe it or not, but we are near the end of the month of May. School is starting to let out, and summer vacations are about to begin. Many of you know that my family and I, we love to take summer vacations. In fact, one of our favorite vacations was taken back in 2015 when we were blessed to visit the wonderful and amazing state of Arizona for the very first time. When we came to Arizona and visited for the very first time, we actually came here to see for ourselves one of the most popular, if not the most popular attraction in all of Arizona. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know I'm talking about this right here. I'm talking about the Grand Canyon. I'm talking about the place that is not just one of the great wonders of our state and of our country, but of the entire world. For those of you who've been blessed to see the Grand Canyon firsthand, you know that it is marvelous. It is amazing. It is majestic. It is absolutely breathtaking. In fact, it is so breathtaking that pictures like this don't do it justice. Descriptions from people like me who have been there and seen it don't do it justice. You got to see the Grand Canyon for yourself to fully understand just how awesome and amazing and, and breathtaking it is. That is usually what I tell people whenever they ask me to describe the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. And if I feel that way about describing an amazing place located on this planet, then I'm pretty sure that the Apostle John felt that way times a trillion when he wrote the words found in Revelation chapter 4. Here in Revelation chapter 4, in this chapter I've invited you to this morning, we need to understand that the Apostle John, the Apostle John is describing something that is really hard for us to get our mortal minds wrapped around. He's describing heaven. He's describing the place that is the paradise of God. He's describing the place that we all want to get to as the people of God, the place where God is and where Jesus is and where amazing spiritual beings are who serve the Lord. You see, while there is no way, that we as feeble human beings could ever know what heaven's going to be like until we get there. I submit that no chapter in all the Bible 
does a better job giving us a taste of what heaven's going to be like than this chapter right here. You see, this chapter, Revelation chapter 4, is, it is the heaven chapter of the Bible. It is the heaven chapter of the sacred scriptures, not Revelation 21. Not even Revelation 22. As we pointed out in our recent Revelation class, many scholars and, divine, and, and brethren are divided on whether those last two chapters in Revelation are actually talking about heaven or if they're using the language of the Old Testament prophets to describe the victorious and glorify church after God brings judgment on their enemies. It is hard for us to know with 100% certainty whether the last two chapters of Revelation are really describing heaven, but there is no doubt, there's no doubt that that is exactly what is being talked about in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, verse 1, notice the text is very clear. When after John hears this message that Jesus gives to the seven churches of Asia, in Revelation 2 and 3, he is told to look and behold, a door is standing open in heaven. There's no doubt about that. And there's a voice coming from up in heaven that says, come up here. And I will show you what's going to take place. Notice how John, John is told to come up here. John is told to come up here and get a glimpse into heaven. He is told to come up here and see what's going on behind the spiritual curtain. The question is, is what did he see? What did he see up there? What did he see behind the open door? What did he see when he was able to get a glimpse into the place that we're all trying to get to as the people of God? Well, I submit this morning that there are at least three things that John was able to see when he was able to get a glimpse into heaven in Revelation chapter 4. And the first thing and most important thing that he was able to see is he was able to see God. He was able to see God the Father. He was able to see God the Father on his throne. Are you back in Revelation chapter 4? Let's keep going with the text. As we look at verse number two, in verse number two, after John was told to come up here and get a glimpse into heaven, in verse two, he says, immediately I was in the spirit. Notice John is not in the flesh here. He's in the spirit, he says. He says, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, for those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, you know that this language found in these verses is similar to what you find in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Like in Isaiah chapter 6, here, the apostle John, like Isaiah, is able to get a glimpse into heaven. Like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, here John 
is able to get a glimpse into heaven. And as he looks into heaven, he sees God on his throne. He sees God the Father all alone on his throne and in all his glory. I believe that is exactly the point of the imagery that is used here in this text. I believe that, that is exactly the point of John describing God as being like Jasper and, and Sardis and why he says there's a rainbow around the throne of God and why he describes God as being like an emerald in appearance. Look, we could spend all day today if we wanted to trying to dissect and break down and analyze and define and talk about what the scholars and the commentaries say about these verses. We could do all of that if we, if we wanted to, but I believe doing so is going to really water down these verses. I believe it's going to distract us from the main point of these verses. The main point of these verses is not what does this mean and what does that mean and what, what does this color mean. No, the main point of this section is God is on the throne. God is on his throne. God is holy on his throne. God is righteous on his throne. God is beautiful. God is just. God is great and awesome and full of majesty and power. God has all authority. He is sovereign as he reigns from his throne. That's the point of these verses. And that's what needs to encourage us. That's what needs to build us up and strengthen us and lift up our spirits. That's what needs to shape and mold our thinking. That is what needs to help us live our lives, understanding each and every day who is, who is truly in charge. You know, the president, as influential and powerful as he may be, according to these verses, he's not the one truly in charge. The Congress, the senators, the mayor, the governor, even the Supreme Court, as powerful as they may be on this planet, according to these verses, they are not the ones who are truly in charge. In the case of these Christians here who first received the revelation letter, they need to understand that the Roman Empire, as mighty and dominant and ruthless as it was, it was not the one that was truly in charge. While they were being imprisoned by the empire for their faith, and while they were being mocked and ridiculed and losing their jobs, and some of them were even being murdered for the cause of the gospel, while the early Christians were being persecuted by a world empire at this time, from heaven's perspective, from heaven's perspective, God was the one that was still in charge. God was sovereign. God was still reigning from his throne in heaven. That was the reality that they needed to keep in the forefront of their minds. And I submit that is a reality that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds as well. That is a reality that we need to keep in the forefront of our minds every single day. Because let's just be honest about it. As Christians today, so often we live our lives worried, right? So often as Christians, we live our lives consumed in the problems of the here and now. We lose sleep if elections don't go our way and if the people we vote for don't get elected. We get scared when judges who 
possess judicial philosophies that we don't agree with get confirmed, we paint a very pessimistic future for our young people and for our kids and our grandkids and for the young couples here who are having children. We say that we just feel so bad for these people. We say that that if things continue going at this rate, if, if our culture continues to spiral more and more out of control, if our society continues to get further and further away from the will of God, well, our young people, our grandkids, these young couples bringing children to this world, oh, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. They're going to have some big problems. It's going to be so tough for them. We got to make sure that we have the right people in public office so that these young people here can have a can have a chance to have a good life. That's the kind of stuff we say, right? So often we forget, we forget. The main message of Revelation chapter four, and that is God was on the throne then, and he's on the throne today, and he is always gonna be on his throne, no election. And this country is ever going to change that. No social movement or slogan is ever going to change that. No Supreme Court or hostile foreign nation or news network will ever change that. You see, as the people of God, instead of living our lives worried and concerned about the future, what we need to do is lift up our heads. And take courage in the fact that no matter what happens in our culture and in our society and our communities, God is on his throne. God rules from his throne. God reigns from his throne. As long as we stick with a sovereign God who has all authority and power, it doesn't matter what happens in our nation. It doesn't matter who holds public office. We are going to be just fine. God is on the throne. That's the first thing John sees when he gets a glimpse into heaven, but that's not the only thing he sees. A second thing he sees in addition to that is God, God being worshipped. God on the throne being worshipped. Go back to the text with me again. Look at verse number four. In verse number four, after seeing God the Father reigning on his throne, in verse 4, it says, around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne Four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him. 
who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Now, again, for the purpose of this lesson, if you don't mind, for the purpose of this lesson, I don't want to get bogged down trying to dissect the meaning of every one of these verses. I don't want to do that to the point that we that we miss the point. I don't want to speculate right now about the meaning of the flashes of lightning and the peals of thunder and the four living creatures and who exactly the 24 elders are. We can discuss all that stuff at another time and another lesson. For now, in this lesson, I just want to focus on the main point. I want to focus on the main thing going on here. What is the main thing going on in these verses? Well, the main thing going on in these verses is that God, God is being worshipped. God the Father is being worshipped. God the Father is being worshipped by all of those who are in heaven. In fact, not only is God the Father being worshipped in heaven in this chapter, but in the next chapter, Revelation 5, we find God the Son being worshipped, right? In the next chapter, we find Jesus. The Lamb of God, the Lion from the tribe of Judah, the one, the only one who is able to open up that book with the seven seals. He's also being worshipped. He's being praised. He's being glorified. He's being given honor and thanksgiving. That is what John sees when he gets a glimpse into heaven. And let me just ask you, does that excite you? Does that fire you up? When you read those verses, do you really want to be in heaven right now? Is that how you feel when you when you read those verses? I want to tell you about a fear that I have. I fear that for many Christians who claim to love God and they claim to love Jesus and they claim to be disciples of Jesus Christ, verses like that, they really don't excite them. They're not excited about verses like that. I, I mean, they may want to go to heaven, but they don't want to go to heaven right now. They don't, they don't get a lot of excitement when they read those verses. Instead, when they read those verses, they may think to themselves, well, heaven seems kind of boring. Heaven seems kind of dull and not as good as living on this earth. I mean, think about it. On this earth, we got sports, right? We got NBA playoffs. We got soccer. We got football. We got Harkins theaters and summer vacations and Netflix and prime movies and music and books to read. None of that stuff is mentioned in those verses. None of those stuff, none of that stuff that is fun and entertaining and keeps us from being bored on this earth is mentioned there in heaven. You see, I fear that for many Christians, they become so fixated. And so absorbed in living in this world that they don't long to experience the greatest feeling that anyone could ever feel. And that is the feeling of being able to be in the presence of God. The feeling of being able to be in the actual presence of Jesus, the, the feeling of being able to partake of the spiritual feast that the Bible says is in heaven. You see, I fear that for that for so many Christians, because they don't see the great blessing found in being able to be in God's presence now 
worshiping him, they also don't see the greater blessing found in being able to be in heaven for eternity in his presence, worshiping him. They actually believe that watching Netflix and movies on Disney Plus and sports and playing golf is better is a better experience than being able to be before the throne of God, worshiping him and praising him and giving him the honor he deserves because he's the creator and he's a sustainer and he's the redeemer and he's awesome, holy and full of love and compassion for us. Let me tell you something. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the worship of heaven is going to be like. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be anything like we've been doing today. I don't know what songs we're going to sing. I don't know how many verses those songs are going to have. I don't know if we're going to have song leaders. I don't know exactly how we're going to look and, and how we're going to feel and how we're going to sound. I don't know any of the logistics about the worship that is in heaven. But when I read verses like Revelation chapter 4, one thing I do know is if it's anything like that, if it's anything like we just read, I do know the worship in heaven is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be perfect. It's not going to be dull. It's not going to be boring. It's not going to be flawed in any way. Like the spiritual beings that we read about here in Revelation chapter 4, when we get to heaven, brothers and sisters, we're not going to have to be forced to worship God. We're not going to have to look at worshiping God in heaven as a burden and as a chore. We're not going to be in heaven looking around saying, well, you know what? I better fake this right now. I better make this worship thing work so God won't kick me out and send me to hell. No, sir, no, ma'am. Like the spiritual beings we read about here in this chapter in heaven, God's glory and his awesomeness and his majesty is going to compel us to want to worship him. It is going to compel us and move us to want to fall down before his throne and give him praise and honor and glory. It's going to compel us to, to come before God and give him the best worship possible and to do it with zeal and, and, and passion and enthusiasm. That's what John sees when he gets a glimpse into heaven. He sees God on his throne. And he sees those in heaven wanting to worship God because he's worthy and because he's amazing. But there's a third thing very quickly that we need to point out about what John sees when he gets a glimpse into heaven. And that is he also sees he sees fellowship. He sees perfect fellowship between God and his people. Go back to Revelation 4 one more time. And I want to reread verses 4 down to verse 6, please. In Revelation 4 and verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting in clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like a sea of glass, like crystal, 
And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, I've said numerous times already throughout the course of this sermon that for the purpose of this lesson, I don't want to get so bogged down trying to dissect the details that we that we missed the point. I've said that numerous times, but for our final point right here and right now, there are a couple of things that John mentions here that I do want to draw some attention to. It is the 24 thrones found in verse number four and the sea of glass found in verse number six. The 24 thrones with 24 elders clothed in white garments wearing crowns, I believe, is a symbolic reference to the totality of God's people. The totality of God's people. How many tribes were there in Israel in the Old Testament? Well, there were 12, right? And how many apostles were the leaders of the early church, the spiritual Israel? Well, there were 12. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. I believe here we have God's faithful people from both covenants being referred to as being in heaven, worshiping God's glorious name. They're going to worship God as a family, and they're going to do that while being in perfect fellowship with God. I believe that is exactly what the sea of glass represents. I believe the sea of glass that is mentioned in this text is imagery pointing back to the furnishings of the Old Testament temple. Go in your Bible, please, to 2 Chronicles chapter 4. In 2 Chronicles chapter 4, this is when Solomon was, was constructing the temple, when he was getting together this glorious temple for the worship of God in Israel. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 4 and in verse number 1, as it describes what Solomon was doing with the temple, it says in 2 Chronicles 4 and verse 1, Then he made a bronze altar, 20 cubits in length, and 20 cubits in width, and 10 cubits in height. Also he made the cast metal sea, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was 5 cubits, and its circumference 30 cubits. Now drop down to verse 6. In verse 6 it says, He also made 10 basins in which to wash, and he set five on the right side and five on the left to rinse things for the burnt offering, but the sea. The sea was for the priests to wash in. Notice how the temple had a sea. Do you see that? It had a sea. What was the sea? Well, in the temple, the sea was a giant basin of water that the priests used for ritual purification and cleansing before they approached God. It was a reminder of the holiness of God. It was a reminder of the purity of God. It was a reminder that fellowship with God is only possible by becoming washed and pure before him. That is what the sea represented in the temple, and that is exactly what we are going to have access to in heaven. Because of the blood of the Lamb, 
because of the blood of Jesus Christ in heaven, we're going to be able to enter into the actual presence of God. We're going to be able to be near God. We're going to be able to see God's face. We're going to be able to be with our Father and our Creator in perfect fellowship. That's what John sees when he gets a glimpse into heaven. And I want to submit that that is the greatest thing about heaven. Above getting to see heaven's beauty. And above being able to see people like Peter and Paul and John and Moses and Abraham and David and all the faithful disciples who have died in the Lord and above getting to experience heaven's perfect security and peace, the greatest thing about heaven is getting to be in perfect fellowship with God. It's getting to be near God. It's getting to be near the Lamb, the Savior, the Redeemer, and perfect fellowship forever. It is getting to regain what was lost in the Garden of Eden. Now, these are three things, three things that John saw when he was given a glimpse into heaven. And I hope that after looking at these things, I hope you really want to go there. I hope you want to go there bad. I hope that this lesson will motivate you to think about heaven all the time, throughout the day, every single day. Let me tell you something. Your life will be just fine if you never experience the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, but you do not want to miss out on experiencing the grandeur of heaven. And so if there's someone here this morning who needs to get ready for heaven, you have an opportunity to do that as we get ready to sing a song of invitation. If you're someone who's outside of Christ, if we can baptize you into Christ so that you can get washed and made clean, so that you can be on that path to enter into the actual presence of God, we will help you with that. Or if there's a Christian here who has left the Father and you need to repent and come back to him, whatever spiritual needs you have, whatever you need to do, whatever we can help you do to get ready for the glories of heaven, don't hesitate. Don't waste this opportunity. Come to the front right now. Let's stand. Let's sing together.